Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. So I'm, I'm still talking about muster this week, and I do think I'm going to get another podcast probably out of it after this one. Uh, initially, I wasn't going to say anything about some of the appendices in the back of the book, but reading through the glossary again, there were some things that really struck me that I think would be would be interesting, and and maybe uh, give some perspective to some of the things he said other in the book, oh, elsewhere in the book that the author said elsewhere in the book. Okay, I got that out. Uh, one of these is, and the, the reason this one really jumps out at me is because of the reaction to the word authenticity that a lot of listeners had, and it sparked a really great discussion about authenticity and uh, you know how judgmental is that word. And I think a discussion of this, this particular op- option here in the glossary uh, touches on that, touches on the idea of judgmental simply because of the way he explains this item, which is legitimacy. Legitimacy, or hewing to accepted standards, is naturally a big thing for the wargaming way. A game rule, particular scenario, a referee ruling is legit if it accords with the creative values and established practice of the game. Giving out 1 XP for recovering a gold piece from the dungeon is legit. Arbitrarily giving out 1,000 XP for a good, quote, good role-playing, end quote, is illegitimate. I don't talk upon, I don't touch upon legitimacy a lot in muster because talking about it all the time makes me sound really judgmental and we're not really about that here. The particular history of D&D does mean, though, that anybody wishing to maintain any sort of standards is confronting with judging legitimacy all the time, in your own actions if nothing else. So a form of the RPG hobby where you actually count scores and strive for real challenge and all that is also one where you have to affirm or deny legitimacy. The issue is not the term. The the issue, if not the term, has long historical roots for D&D. A traditional antipode of legitimate D&D for the longest time was munchkinning or Monty Hall play. Terms that used to imply illegitimate, collusive play practices that rob the game of its challenge. In practice, I mostly end up using the concept of legitimacy in establishing the dividing line between wargaming D&D and other styles of the game. For example, I don't consider Dragonlance to be legitimate to be legitimate on account of the campaign campaign's dramatization-inclined nature with outright referee advice that runs counter to wargaming's pr- principles. Dragonlance is a classic masterpiece of the middle school D&D, but running it legit would be nigh impossible. I hope it's clear how all of this about establishing, is about establishing the standards of the sport, not about disrespecting other games. Line dancing is not legitimate football, but that's not a condemnation of line dancing so much as it is defining the identity of football. Now, to me, it seems from this entry in the glossary, that the author is establishing that he's not looking to demean the way other people play, but he's looking for terminology that he can use 
to separate what he considers the wargaming way from other styles of play. So that when he talks about legitimacy, and I believe this would also apply to authenticity as well, that he is simply trying to draw a bright line between what he what style of gaming he is playing, trying to play, trying to advocate for versus other styles of play within the game which he sees as also credible and leg- and well of course legitimate is his word that he uses for that st- for the wargaming style of play but he he views those as credible ways to play but it's just not what he is trying to describe and what he is looking for in a game and i think this is borne out when going back to the section where he talks about authenticity is valuable he says that I think the purpose of playing the game, playing in the wargaming way, is to set up a meaningful scenario and resolve it with the group's own wisdom and judgment. I call it authenticity when this happens. The opposite of authentic gaming is experiencing what amounts to a media presentation created in advance. So I, I think that that is kind of descriptive of his mindset. In using the terms authenticity and legitimacy. And so I, I want to go through just a few other terms that he defines in the glossary that are, a lot of them are interrelated to each other. Uh, two of these are asking questions and maneuver. Asking questions is one of the two main tasks of the player in D&D. Being able to interrogate the GM for further detail on the scenario and game state is both a necessity of the verbal medium of the game as well as unique as its unique strength. Learning how to be a good questioner is by far the majority of the skill required to play D&D well. Your task is nothing less than to fish out the necessary information that makes it plain as to which maneuver leads to victory. And then going to maneuver, maneuver is one of the two primary tasks of the player in D&D. Whenever a player makes a move in the game, it's a maneuver. The referee's main job is to process maneuvers by ruling on how to resolve the maneuver's consequence to the game state and then executing the ruling. The ideal of the war game is ultimately to hunt for that golden moment when a player makes a really clever maneuver. Showcases something novel. That's what the game structure ultimately looks for, that golden maneuver. Another sort of clumped group of defined terms are fiat, method, and rule. Fiat is RPG theory jargon for free pl- for a free player choice. Usually, we're concerned with the GM ruling by fiat. See method for contrast. Method is a particular manner of accomplishing a purpose. In the RPG context, we usually use the term in juxtaposition to the concepts of rule and arbitrary fiat. Methods are formalized, i.e. pre-existing, verbalized, and conscious like rules, but they are not binding. You use a method by choice and as an alternative to raw fiat. Wargaming D&D is a peculiar game in that most of its fundamental structure is methodological rather than being reified in the rules. Neutral referee is a method, not a rule. Arguably, this book is mostly about the methodology underlying the explicit rules given by a game text. And then going by going to rule, rule in game theory, 
is a formally posited play process enforced by the social contract of the game. One of the exceptional things going on in refereed wargaming, including old school D&D, is that the perceived rules of the game are applied by a live referee, which paradoxically makes them not rules at all in the technical sense. The actual rule is, GM declares a fair ruling based on established rules, cruft, precedent, and circumstance, with the so-called rules lacking direct social contract enforcement. See rules cruft below. And then the definition of rules cruft, which I believe I've read before, Rules Cruft is the name I've coined for a specific kind of game rule that refereed wargaming and role-playing produces. The concept is analogous to case law used in common law jurisprudence. Ideally, Cruft is created by the process of play and applied as precedent. The difference between rules as in the rules monopoly versus rules as in Cruft is an evergreen source of issues for games like D&D that utilize Cruft in their process. And now this is interesting because... At another place in the book, he specifies that all rulings should not be treated as precedent. It's something that you make in the moment based on the rules that you know and the, the game world you've established. And you may decide later that that was not quite right, not quite, incor- not quite correct, or possibly there's a better way. And so you don't necessarily apply that individual ruling to the entire campaign. In this context, it would definition, it would seem that rules cruft is somewhere between the rules established by, you know, a book, a code of rules that you are playing under, like the OD&D uh, Three Little Books or the AD&D Dungeon Master's Manual and Player's Handbook, and those rulings that ne- don't necessarily apply as precedent. Rules Cruft occupies some kind of middle ground going by those rules. And then two more terms that I think that are somewhat related to this idea of rule, method, fiat. The, the, the differences between them are two forms of reasoning that he has for that GMs utilize during this style, can utilize during this style of game. Analytical reasoning is one of the two major types of knowledge attainable by a GM referee in their decision-making, with intuitive decision-making being the other. Analytical information originates in external records and shared memory of the playgroup and thus may be justified well analytically. And then going to intuitive decision-making, intuitive decision-making is my jargon for when the GM referee directly consults their personal imagined game fiction to introduce a scenario fact or make a ruling. The concept contrasts with the decisions based on analytical reasoning from scenario notes or overtly established fiction. Intuitive decision-making is a crowning challenge of skilled refereeing. I find this interesting, both in the context that I think it, it is a branch of the idea of fiat rule, fiat rule method way of adjudicating a game, you know, where intuitive decision-making would seem to fall more on the fiat side and maybe not as much on the method or rule side, whereas analytical would definitely fall under the rule and rule cruft side of decision-making within the context of a scenario or a campaign. But intuitive decision-making is asking the referee to directly consult their personal imagined game fiction. 
And you can see where, you know, there's the danger there of, are you just playing in the GM's novel that, you know, the, the, uh, the criticism that is given to some of the more modern styles of play, which, you know, a wargaming style of game has largely, would largely seem to divert and divulge from. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here, of course, because I don't think he is for that kind of, uh, in fact, I know he's not because he actually has a term that applies to that section which I'm looking up right now, uh, the scene stack. Scene stack is a funny jargon for a common way to prepare RPG scenarios. The GM prepares a linear stack of game content. Typically, encounters or scenes are similar. This is the normal way that almost all role-playing games conceive of the task of GM prep. The GM imagines the play content of the coming session in advance and then prepares it similar to how a theatrical script outlines the scenes of play. The core play activity of Wargaming D&D is not very compatible with a with scene stack prep as players have the right to retreat and generally just engage in the scenario in non-linear ways. So, you know, from, from that definition, you can see he's definitely not talking about uh, using the GM, using their, their intuitive decision-making to enforce a lack of player choice or a direction or a overarching plot onto a narrative and taking away that choice from the players. But it is interesting that intuitive decision-making is something that he considers uh, a skilled refereeing task, that ability to intuit from the way that the campaign was established and the scenario was established with the aid of the players, as this book has made clear that there's a negotiation phase that you establish the next scenario and you're building a campaign. You consult with the people who are going to play in the campaign, but making sure that the, the GM has in his head what they're trying to accomplish and can use that to make decisions within the game, even if it's not built on prior established actions, prior established uh, maybe game, maybe fiction texts. They said, you know, we want to be like this part of the Lord of the Rings or this part of the Wheel of Time or similar or, you know, this type of any other game series that, that maybe it may have referenced uh, Three Musketeers if you're playing in that kind of world. So it seems like the author is saying here is that Using it, using that mental picture as a decision-making process is good, but it's when the GM uses it to impose their will on the game that it becomes something to be avoided. And then I'm going to wrap up with one more word that doesn't have anything to do with any of the concepts I just discussed, but when I ran across it, it just struck me because it was a use of this word that I am not at all familiar with. I'm familiar with it in completely different context, and so I just wanted to share this, this definition. Uh, filibuster, or freebooter, its English equivalent, is a charming bit of American military jargon from the 19th century indicating privately conducted warfare. Privateers, corporate security forces, and volunteer battalions can all be filibusters in this sense. D&D is a fantasy war game about the conduct 
of filibustering expeditions, whence the, hence whence the relevance here. A referee preparing to rule on the various social, economic, and military issues involved in such expeditions might find having a name for the practice handy. I have never heard the term filibuster used that way. And I just that just tickled me, so I wanted to share it. So that's it for this session. Uh, there's some more good bits in the glossary. And I think uh, I'll probably end up using some of them as I try to to put a wrap on this thing. I'm still trying to put my head around how I'm going to organize that because I want to get some things down on paper because I'm all over the place whenever I think about it. So, and just to give with, and, and the context here is, so what is the wargaming way? That's, that's really the context here. And I'm going to put it, try to put it in context of what I was expecting before I opened the book based on, you know, other discussions I've seen about the game and, uh, you know, just my own predilections, of course. And then what, what I found in the book. So that's what I'm trying to explore and organize and put together without it going off into too many directions at once to try to have some focus to it. But So I don't know if that'll be next time because uh, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get my head around it. But I hope you've enjoyed this a little bit. I really liked uh, these bits from the glossary. And if you've, if you've picked up the book in digital form uh, for free, it's on RPG. Uh, muster a primer for war. Uh, you know, dig into that glossary. There's some good stuff in there. So thank you for listening. And now more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. I got a little ahead of myself in the last podcast, uh, so we're going to step back to day 112 and the seventh dungeon, the seventh delve into the dungeon of the keep that the party is making its home base. The party consists of Sven Svinlig, the halfling fighter, Katja Rasputin, the first level fighter, first level cleric, fourth level magic user, half elf, uh, Bernie Keebler, the elven first level fighter, first level magic user, first level thief, and Harl and Quinn two human rangers. In the last delve, the party had had encountered some uh, strange, attractive forces in some of the corridors that would pin them to the walls. And just to pull back the curtain, this is an idea that I had some time back about lodestones, uh, making them similar in some ways to magnets where they they attract uh, metal, but all kinds of metals, even metals that in our world are not magnetic in nature. For example, gold and silver would not be uh, magnetic in nature. But they grab them, and depending on the size of the lodestone, it may just slow a group in armor down, or it may pin them to the wall requiring a strength check, or for them to be a strength check to avoid being pinned, or to make a, a better strength check, or a have uh, their fellow party members pull them loose to get out. And they ran into a series of corridors where when I rolled them up, they had a bunch of tricks and traps. And I thought this was a good place to slip it in because it would make it kind of a theme within that section of the of the dungeon, essentially. So they planned a more securitous route to 
get pet, get a move away from those traps, but still get back to the area where they were because they had left some unexplored sections. So they got back to a 40 by 40 chamber. They had come in through the eastern passage and had left through the southern passage previously. This time they went in through the southern passage and there were two path- passages on the north side. One, they believed from their map, connected up to another corridor where they had run into, near where they had run some, some orcs. So they went to the northeasternmost corridor, and it ended after 30 feet, but they found a secret door in what appeared to be a dead end. Opening the secret door, they came into a 20-foot by 30-foot room where there were eight large pedipalps, which is a creature they had run into earlier. And these came off a random table in the uh, Monster Manual 2, and they are in the Monster Manual 2, the first edition Monster Manual 2. Uh, and there, I don't think I looked, really went over the description the last time. Uh, commonly called whip scorpions, these creatures can be found in nearly any climate except that of Arctic or Tundra. They appear to be a cross between a spider and a scorpion. Pedipalpi, not pedipalpuses or whatever it was I said before, pedipalpi, Maybe found a variety of different colorings, browns and tans being the most common. And there's three different sizes, large, huge, and giant, which if those are the only sizes you're going to have, sounds like the naming conventions for, uh, you know, high dollar coffee, where all the sizes are different sizes of large. I'm not sure from the illustration what part of them is a scorpion, because it doesn't have the, you think of a scorpion, you think of the tail, and it doesn't show that. They've chosen them with eight legs or maybe six legs with the two forwarded appendages being more akin to arms and then two really thin long type antennae that almost look like they're coming from the front set of the six of the front set of the six legs but they have the the front part of a spider in terms of their uh, mouth or briscus area and all the eyes so during their confrontation with these creatures uh, Bernie took a hit, but after an extended combat, the party prevailed. So in that room, they found another secret door in the northeast corner, leading to yet another 20 by 20 foot room. And here they encountered a bowler, a large, essentially not sentient, but living boulder, which Bernie was able to dispatch. And within that bowler is a small gym. They also found huge chests with Electrum in it and, a, and some sort of a magical sheet along with a gem. Another gem. Returning to the 40 by 40 foot room, the party goes to the other northernmost passage and then finds a northeast offshoot. There they encounter two Al Mirage, and I'm not sure if that's exactly how you spe- say that. It's A-L-M-I-R-A-J. These are from the Fiend Folio, and they look like... Uh, hairs with horns on them rabbit hairs not big balls of hair although they are hairy of course because they're rabbit like uh and it does say in the description that they can be uh trained although it explains that this is for if they're found young but it doesn't really talk about how many you would find in a lair where you would find young so i decided to do a reaction check as katya tried to befriend befriend them it was a very high check, so I deemed that she had essentially made friends with them and they would they would be subject to training for later. 
continuing on the party down the northeast corridor, the party found a 30 by 20 foot room covered in mirrors. But in addition to the ref- to their reflections in each mirror, they see different backgrounds, like they w- they were all reflecting different rooms. The mirrors detect his magic. The party chooses to avoid interacting with them. Returning fa- southeast, they go back to the main hall and continue north, skirting one of the attracting lodestone traps that tried to pull them to the wall. They pass through the area where they and the berserkers had fought orcs, and then go west to a previously unexplored corridor. Following this about 100 feet, they return to an area that's near an area that, where they mapped. They find a couple of corridors, one going northeast and the next one going north, that converge in a location that is to the sort of north, sort of the, the east of their main inhabited area. And going about 20 feet down the northern corridor, they encounter a long chimney in the ceiling that appears to go up a very large way. They skirt this area and immediately run across a secret door to the west, which they spike up and continue to continue exploring, and they go forward about 60 feet, and the corridor turns to the east and expands to 20 feet wide. After another 60 feet, they see a spiral staircase in the northeast corner, and the corridor itself turns south. That, In turn, they go south about 30 feet. The corridor branches off at, to the east, and then it dead ends in the south with s- secret doors in the south and the west in the small area that they had come around. So they follow the branch off to the east another, 20 feet, another 40 feet, and it turns northwest, where it goes another 90 feet, and then intersects with part of a corridor, and because it's still 20 feet wide, part of a corridor and part of a chamber, 30 feet by 20 feet, which has a, a large chest in it. Uh, they don't find any traps. It appears empty, but there's a false bottom that yields some copper. There's a west hall out and two north halls out on either end of the northern wall. They can see from their map that the west hall leads to a previously explored area. So they follow one of the northern corridors 30 feet up into a very large chamber with high ceilings that is 60 feet by 60 feet. The chamber initially appears empty, but they find secret, they find, other than, They find a corridor leading to the north. They also find a secret door in the north on the western side of the room and another secret door on the eastern side of the room. They spike these shut, and while further exploring the room, they find a trap door door with a gem in it. So they follow the, spike the secret door shut, follow the northern corridor out 30 feet. It turns to the east. After another 30 feet, it branches off northeast and southeast in addition to continuing east. The, their map seems to indicate that, the, that they are near the edge of the hill to the north, so they opt for the northeast passage first. It dead ends after 20 feet, but there is a secret door on the west side that opens into a chamber that is 
50 feet along the northern wall, 30 feet along the southern wall, and 20 feet north-south along the west wall, and 20 feet on a slant on the eastern side. And in this room, they encounter and surprise five Norkers, which are very burly uh, sort of brothers to hobgoblins. After killing three, uh, the others surrender, and they turn them over to a couple of the troops that they now have, trailing them as part of their explorations, staying out of the danger zone, but able to escort any friendly creatures that they follow and take any prisoners that they take. Under loose stone, under loose stone, in bags, they find more copper pieces and a gem. Going back to the passage, they follow the eastern main passage another 60 feet to a chamber that is 20 feet by 50 feet. It is empty, and they find a, a dead-end hallway that goes 30 feet back to the east, a little further south from where they came in. But on the southern wall, they find a secret door, which they go through. This opens into a hallway that goes east and then branches off down to the, that goes west and then branches off down to the southeast, in addition to connecting to a northeast corridor that goes back to the main eastern corridor that they came in through. Following the, the southeast branch, they find a, after 20 feet it dead ends, but they find a secret door that goes south into a hallway that goes another 20 feet south before a door opens into a large high ceiling triangular room. And I would note that just kind of for ease of my, my own ease of use in mapping, I've been drawing most of my triangular rooms as right triangles. So this room along the right angles walls is 30 feet across the northern wall, and then it's uh, 80 feet north-south on that wall. And then, of course, there's an angle wall that connects. On the eastern side, there is another door, which they open into a small 10, 20 by 10 room. This is also empty. So they follow the corridors back around to the large 60 foot by 60 foot chamber and begin exploring the secret doors. Since they know the north goes near the edge of the hill, they explore the northern secret door first and it opens into a 20 by 30 foot room, also high ceilinged, also empty. So then they return back to the chamber and go to the eastern secret door. This opens into a 40 foot by 20 foot high ceilinged room. And here they are attacked once again by piercers, which get them by surprise in the dim lighting, come crashing down and generally create havoc. Uh, Katya takes a hit during a series of confused attacks with the party fending off near misses and losing the piercers in the stalagmites along the floor before finally Bernie and Quinn are able to kill them. There's two of them. Bernie opens an iron trunk lock and jerks back his hand and then falls over dead. There's a shocked silence. The party eventually finds silver and a ring in the chest. Harl reminds Katya of the magic pool. And, of course, Katya has, still has the ring with one wish left. 
but they elect to take Bernie back to the magic pool, thinking that since it's a lawful good aligned pool, it's more likely to bring him back intact, since Katya was not certain of how how well her wishes had gone before with the ring. Uh, and they do successfully bring Bernie back with Katya's one wish that she will get from that pool. Uh, Bernie insists he's okay. There's time in the day that they continue, but they elect to end the delve right there. So another, well, it's not really a near miss for Bernie. He died again and came back. Uh, he's got to start wondering how many lives he's got left, I'm sure. And that ends that delve. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response, and it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864-209-1441. You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.